You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome and thank you for joining us today on another episode of Lozano Smith's podcast. Um, I'm your host, Sloan Simmons, a partner out of uh, the Sacramento office of Lozano Smith. My specialties are student issues and litigation, um, which couldn't be more far afield from the the very interesting and timely topic, which uh, we are going to learn and talk about today with two of our outstanding uh, partners at Lozano Smith, Dan Maruccia, a partner here in the Sacramento office, um, who is the lead of our public finance group. Um, and also a longtime facilities and business attorney with our firm. Um, and on the other side of the coin, Miss Devin Lincoln, who usually is our host um, here in the Lozano Smith podcast, but but is is here today as one of our experts. Um, again, another longtime Lozano Smith attorney. She's a partner in our Monterey office, a one of our practice group leaders in facilities and business. And I would say the firm expert when it comes to energy. Uh, projects and the issues that that relate to that in the area we're going to focus on today with you two experts are energy projects and the financing issues that relate to them and and it, hopefully by the end of our discussion um, I think our our listeners will have a fresh look at what are the types of projects you can do when it comes to energy and the full menu of options for financing those projects now you two are not only excellent attorneys, but excellent talkers. And I say that in a, in a good way. So I'm going to do my best to stay out of the way of this conversation. Um, but, but let's jump right into it. Devin, uh, what kinds of projects are we talking about when it comes to energy efficiency? And why are we talking about them? Okay, great. Thanks, though. And it's funny to be sitting on the other side of this. And I'll do my best to, 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 to not try to tell you what to ask me um so okay so basically (laughs) so basically we've been i've been doing this work in this sphere for more than a decade remember my first solar agreement um but over the past 10 years and over that time there's been this boom in clean energy projects for schools a lot of that but not all of that is solar and also municipalities have entered this sphere too um, but for some reasons that we can talk about, it has, it's been a really robust trend for schools in particular. The projects that we're talking about um, come in three categories, two of which are much bigger right now than the, uh, the third. First is solar. Um, solar is where I've spent a lot of time. The second is energy efficiency projects, uh, generally speaking. And the third would be battery storage. So, so Devin, let's 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 start with solar, and I and I say with uh, mm-hmm. say solar, and I, I know, and I'm guessing, that you're talking about the panels that we see. That seems to me within the last, especially four or five years, I see parking lots in districts, big and mm-hmm. small, mm-hmm. district office, high schools, everywhere. It seems like in the last five years, where you start to see these popping up. Is can you talk about mm-hmm. is that what we're talking about here? And, 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 and kind of expand on what you mean uh, when we're talking solar and, and, and presumably with the panels? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when I first started working in this area, a lot of the projects we saw were roof-mounted solar because it kind of kept it in a confined space. But roof-mounted solar has problems because you necessarily have to look at the structure of your roof. If you don't have a really new roof, then you um, you know you may have to have to fix your roof before you put it on. So roof mounts are less popular than they used to be. 
We also have ground mounts, which is where you would take a corner of your campus and essentially fence it off and put up what would look like a solar farm, panels that are affixed to the ground. But to do that, you've got to have space that you're willing to give up for a period of time. And the most popular thing is what what you were just talking about, Sloan, which is um, shade structures, usually over a parking lot, not always. Some of them, sometimes we see them over, say, lunch areas. But we see these shade structures. I love them because, hey, you got shade for your for your car. Right. But I think there's been a growing acceptance of um, of that actually being an attractive option. And I emphasize attractive because some folks don't like them. They don't find them aesthetically pleasing. And so that some, sometimes is an issue. Devin, you, you had said you said three areas, solar. Mm-hmm. Let's go to number two, energy efficiency projects. Um, can you talk about that, that second category? Yeah. So if you, the best way to make a site more efficient, have it cost less energy, cost less out of your general fund for energy costs is to make it more efficient. It's not sexy work, but it's really the the biggest bag your buck, they say. And so um, usually we're talking about lighting improvements, just going around replacing all your light bulbs with LEDs, et cetera, or HVAC improvements, changing out a really old and expensive um, HVAC system. And like I said, there's there's been a lot of funding for those kinds of projects in the past few years. And that, especially in schools. So, so and then, then that leads to your third, the third category you described, which is battery storage. Right, right. Batteries, there aren't a lot of these right now, but it's kind of a coming thing, especially as batteries get better. You usually don't have a battery system if you don't have a solar project, but not all solar projects today have battery. The idea is basically that you're storing energy on site that may be generated at a time you're not using it. Like say, you know, when school's out of session, but the sun's out. And so you're, you're, you're holding on to it. So <clears throat> with that framework, and that's very helpful, thank you. Um, why is this a hot topic right now? Well, in some ways it's not, it's been a hot topic for 10 years or so. I mean, even longer than that. I think it's, the reason it's been consistently a, um, an issue over that period of time is mostly money. You know, you go back 10 years, we're talking about the recession and we've, over this past decade, really been looking at ways to drive money um, into salaries, into operational issues for our public entities. And so one of the things we've looked at over all that time is how do we lower energy costs? And I said California has been very supportive in this area. There's also um, the federal tax credit. There's a federal investment tax credit that has generated a lot of the work that's going on in solar because private investors, and we'll talk about this in a minute, can help fund projects and get a tax write-off for doing so. But you know, also, I think the other main reason this is an issue is is politics, is that the public in California frequently are demanding clean energy and are demanding that their public agencies look at look at being green. Um, and so, I mean, a lot of times the superintendents or other clients who call me, you know, it's not really what they want to focus on because they're focused on conduct, running a school district or running their agency. And yet the, pub, the, the public is, is, is pressing this issue, the uh, board member is pressing this issue. And so that's why it's, it's often, it's really um, uncharted territory, often very difficult for our clients to navigate because it's not their core business. So Dan, if we're going to focus on solar, uh, for a minute, what are some of the ways that public entities pay for these projects? Well, Devin is, uh, as Devin can tell you, that the most common, certainly from from her perspective as well, and we'll 
you know, shift into my perspective in a financing context where we're actually incurring debt. But the but without a financing, the most common approach to this is a is a solar power purchase agreement, which is which is commonly known and by by all as a PPA. Um, uh, PPA in that in that structure, a private vendor actually comes onto your property and builds the in this case a solar installation, whether it be the the panels over a, over a parking lot for those those shade structures that we were talking about a moment ago. Uh, but uh, they continue to own those solar panels over the life of of a contract by which you are. Uh, getting energy from the improvements that they built. You don't own those improvements, but you buy um, buy the uh, the energy um, from them um, because it's being generated right on your site. Yeah. So, so as Dan said, with a PPA, those sage structures that you see. It may not if you if you were to park under one of those today, they may not actually be owned by the pub by the public agency whose parking lot you're in. They may actually be owned by a private investor. Interesting. Yeah, and um, those those facilities, those solar arrays, are generating energy, which some of it is being used locally. But if there's excess that the that the agency can't use at that time, that excess is being sold back to the grid. So that's why I mentioned there are interconnection issues. Um, and we call that interconnect, usually an interconnection agreement with a local public utility. And then let's say you're holding a board meeting or a school dance at night when obviously your panels aren't drawing down energy. At that point, you're actually buying your power from the grid. And those two transactions, you selling it to the grid and you buying it from the grid, it's not, that's not a one-to-one wash. You actually pay a little bit more for what you're buying than what you're selling, and then you get paid for what you're selling. But essentially, that's how you cut your costs is by generating power that you can use on site or sell back. Uh, I, Devin, I've always been really curious about the about the sell feature of it. So in the in the, in the context of mm-hmm. where you have an overabundance of energy beyond that which you need, and you don't have to buy it from the utility, how you this is a the, the, a PPA um, is between the the agency right and and the vendor or mm-hmm. PPA provider, but is is the is the utility a, a piece of that as well or how is it that we are what is the contractual arrangement such that we get to sell mm-hmm. our extra energy to the utility or back on the grid as you put it is that all part of it or is, mm-hmm. does it require mm-hmm. a separate agreement that's a separate agreement between the vendor and the public utility, so PG&E, Southern California Edison, et cetera. Hmm. And we typically, as advisors to school districts, don't get involved in that agreement. They're pretty standard forms that PG&E dictates the forms, but it's a requirement that you have such an agreement. But what's interesting too, for the big public utilities is they're being pushed to move from a model where power is being generated in these big centralized you know, power factories to what we call a distributed generation model, meaning it's on my roof, it's on my school site, et cetera. And that is a complex transition for the public utilities and there's been some pushback on the state level. So I've got some perhaps overly simplistic questions just for just for me to kind of understand some of these parts. So PPA, outside vendor comes in, we enter an agreement with them to build, you know, they're, they're gonna put up the energy panels over the parking lot. Our agreement with them is that they still own those on our property. We get to use the energy generated from those. The excess energy created from those panels gets sold back to the grid 
in an agreement between the private company that built those panels and the energy company, PG&E, mm-hmm. et cetera, mm-hmm. when they're selling back that private party to PG&E, who, who gets to hold on to those dollars? Is that something flexible within the contract? Yeah, no, that so the 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 provider pockets that because because the provider is that controls that energy. So you usually have a commitment to not you know to buy a certain amount of power each year to serve your site, and you've already tried to figure out what you're using, and the PPA is usually sized at like ninety percent of what that site might use. Okay. So um, you're still going to be buying, buying power from the grid. But the idea would we're gonna yeah. but the benefit to us as a school district is that the energy we're purchasing from that company is going to be at a lower rate than we would otherwise pay from the grid. That's our big benefit. Well, yeah. So that's that's where the PPAs get interesting. So, or one of the many ways they're interesting is that used to be we'd see what we called an escalator clause in a PPA, which would say this year I'm going to pay so much per kilowatt hour for my energy. And it varies too, by the way, what you pay under a PPA from region to region. So if you're sitting in the valley where it's really sunny, you can get better rates uh, versus on the coast where it's foggier. But anyway, you would be, the an escalator clause would say, I'm gonna pay this this year, and next year I'm gonna pay 3% more per kilowatt hour or 2.5 or even 5%. And the promise that the vendor would be making to you well, the, the proposition they'd be saying would be, look, we all know that energy costs go up and up and up and up, and this escalator is sized below what we project um, will be the escalation in the public utility market. So you got a good deal. You'll always be saving money because PG&E will always charge you more in the future than we will. But the problem with that is nobody can guarantee at what rate public utility costs will go up. And so that was always a speculative venture. Today, though, we're seeing PPAs, by and large, with a flat rate, meaning you get to agree to pay for energy for the next 20 years at the same rate you're paying today, which is, that's got to be a good deal, right? I mean, that's got to be like, to we don't, there's almost nothing that you can agree to pay the same thing for 20 years from now that you're paying right now. So the PPAs have become, that's one of the reasons they've been explosive in growth is because they are offering attractive energy prices right now. A couple of other dumb questions. All right, so I've done a PPA. I have the solar panels over the parking lot. I've entered into an agreement that doesn't have flat rates. It's got an escalator clause. And it just so happens in year four or five, I know that if I was buying it from the grid, I'd be paying less Mm -hmm. than I would be under the PPA. Is there like, is there... Is there a switch in the maintenance, uh, you know, shed where we could say, you know what, we're not going to, we're, we're going off the grid. Mm-hmm. We're going to use grid energy today mm-hmm. because it's going to save us money as opposed to using it from our PPA uh, solar panels over the parking lot. And, and while we're not purchasing any from them, the PPA, if it wants to, can sell its energy back to the grid. Or are we contractually bound under that PPA to have to use X amount of energy from that PPA project. Yeah, no, you are. Um, you, you so, are. Okay. I mean, basically, the way the vendor looks at this is it's a 20 year commitment that you're going to be paying your energy bills at a certain rate. And one of the reasons that these are attractive to the vendors and to the investors in those vendors is that we're talking about public entities that are likely going to be around paying their bills for the next 20 years. Right. So it's kind of like a bond almost. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's true also as well, at least it, it used to be 
that you would find as a feature of some of these agreements a certain minimum savings guarantee of sorts. Mm-hmm. And, and that may have gone by the wayside, Devin, in the last last couple of years. No, I still these. see those for sure. Yeah, in my in, in the early days of, of this, early days for me, going back a few years, I, some of these savings guarantees, I, I remember uh, part of the issues that we had in their, in their application is that they were hard to understand and difficult to apply. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think I you can still get a savings guarantee if you ask for one. What I caution clients is to make sure they understand what's in that guarantee and what it does and doesn't do. Boards look at the word guarantee and go, okay, I'm good. I'm covered. Um, And the guarantee really, really what it tends to cover is that the system will perform as designed. Um, So if a system underperforms, often the savings guarantee is linked to having a maintenance operations contract with the vendor that they're going to maintain. This is, I mean, that's on the side where they're not actually the owner, not a PPA. But, you know, you got to understand what's in it. You gotta understand what's not in it, and you also need to understand, you know, that that it's not a, a promise, um, and it affects your rate. Most um, most vendors will charge a little bit more yeah. if they're guaranteeing the system as well. Yeah. Dan, yeah, there's a value to that. Can you talk about how vendors are able to to do this? This twenty year flat rate type idea. The role of, as I understand it, private investors. Mm-hmm. in this equation. Yeah, well, private investor is almost always going to be involved, you know, um, and, and, and not just here, but just think of it, think of it much more broadly. Uh, these businesses, they run lean, right? So they themselves are going to be, and, and contractors are very much the same way, right? The contractors don't, don't proceed on a large construction project without getting their own construction loan for it, right? So there's a there's a bank somewhere. If there's a construction project happening, there's going to be a bank somewhere. So that is the that is the approach of of these of these PPA or even you know the solar energy providers, the vendors, the ones that are making or in charge of or overseeing uh, the the capital facilities improvements, right? So they're going to a bank. The reason that they're able to to do this is that the, the, this essentially this market is created on the on the back of you know as is commonly done a federal subsidy. In this case, it's uh, the Federal Investment Tax Credit or ITC. Specifically, this allows a taxpayer, somebody with an income tax liability, to the feds to write up off, off to write off up to thirty percent of the costs of building the solar installation against its other uh, income tax or federal income tax liability. So it makes sense for them to do that. Oh, and by the way, that it, uh, they're able to, to take that uh, tax credit over the first five years following the, the construction. Um, so after five years, it goes away. Right. And, and the reason that um, the other interesting piece about this, why, why does the, you might ask, why is it that the school district doesn't, try to monetize or make make value of this well in a sense by doing this they are and in a sense actually directly or you know somewhat indirectly this is the point of the feds the feds is creating a market uh, to incentivize lenders to incentivize uh, vendors to to engage with school districts for these particular purposes energy efficiency right to a school district as a public entity the, the, the tax credit itself has no direct value. Why is that? Why doesn't it have any direct value as opposed to indirect value? Well, that's because they don't have a tax bill to pay to the feds, right? There is no income tax liability. So the feds are, are creating this tax 
uh, credit and putting it in within reach of those who would be incentivized to do public work, including energy efficiency improvements at at school districts. Uh, so, so for them, it pencils out in such a way that um, it's a good investment for them, for their tax portfolio, and it still remains a good investment and pencils out, even though the, the market rate, the competitive market rate, is both flat and low. Well, just uh, on this, on this uh, federal investment tax credit, the ITC, um, is that, how long has that been in place? 2006, I believe, and okay. it was extended uh, several years ago. Um, but it's set to it's set to wane. So this year it's up to 30%. This is the last year, and then it will start to go down over time, unless the Congress decides to renew it. Right. Which of course we're looking at a very different Congress than when it was renewed a few years ago. So, and by the way, it's also available to commercial entities and um, residential owners, but. Like I said, it's um, been particularly, and as Dan said, I'm sorry, it's been particularly attractive to investors looking to invest in projects owned by public agencies because because public agencies are a sure bet, it's a, or a much sure bet than most other parties. With 06, you're making me think this was, when this went into place, that's when we saw the large boom in residential homeowners putting solar mm-hmm. up, right? That was mm-hmm. part of the trigger for that to occur, uh, you know, 10 years ago or so. Yeah, but but I'm also hearing you say that um, whether in this present Congress or administration, um, and, and uh, or or in a, a later different administration in Congress, there's always the chance, especially as we, depending on who's who's in the the, the seat of power, if they want to encourage this approach, especially on the solar side, we could see this come back renewed and even uh, more in, uh, greater incentive than even presently, right? Yeah, yeah, for it's, sure. It, it's, we just don't know if that'll happen. Right. Exactly, and these, and I think that's a that's a an excellent point to make, and something to that instructs how it is that we think about trends in this market and many others. You know what uh, this is. This particular federal tax credit is a federal subsidy, right? Um, it is. It is that that earlier administration's. Um, public policy goal to incentivize energy efficient work by virtue of this tax credit. We have seen since the current administration has has come around that other like benefits that uh, in the form of tax incentives creating or incentivizing particular kinds of capital improvements have gone by the wayside. And and, and I think that's a good point to, to make by you because it, it, it allows us to kind of forecast what it is that we're likely to see. Is it likely that this is going to stick around based on the temperature of this particular administration? Hard to say. Hard to say, but it doesn't seem to be in keeping with the 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 embrace of 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 business um, that and certain types of business. On the other hand, it kind of does because we are incentivizing a sort different sort of business, maybe just not a traditional uh, a traditional energy business. So it's difficult to say, but I think it's it's helpful to understand how you might forecast changes in the law going forward on this. So, so Devin, flat energy costs, clean tech. I mean, this sounds great, uh, you know, but are there reasons or downsides to doing a PPA that 
that school districts need to have on their radar? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the the term of a PPA is usually 20 years long, sometimes 25, because even after the ITC expires, there's return on investment for the vendor. Um, so you're tying up your site for, for 20, 25 years. And if you decide to change the use of that site, the costs of um, exiting a PPA, say your example of you're not doing as well as you used to versus the PG&E market, the costs of terminating that agreement are very high. We usually set forth in the agreement and they start in the millions of dollars and come down very slowly. So there's a lot of there's a lot of reason to consider carefully whether this is the obligation you want to hand down to a future administration, a future board. You know, this is also really volatile market space. Um, over the time that I've been in, working in this area, we've seen a lot of companies change names, go through bankruptcy, the landscape keeps changing. And so generally speaking, your PPA is probably going to end up being held by somebody different. 10, 20 years later, the vendor might be different. And usually that works out fine because it's an asset that uh, is valuable and that your, your investor is going to want to see somebody pick it up who is able to carry forward with it. But there can be times when I've heard I've had clients say or I've heard anecdotes, we couldn't find our vendor, we nobody's maintaining the panels, that kind of thing. So there, are, um, you know, it's it's, it's a it's a long commitment. So Devin, I, I'm curious about about that. Is is it important to to, or is it much better for those reasons to tether or have tethered the 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 provider with uh, the um, company that is actually doing the maintenance on the on the improvements as well is that is that a is that a, is that an important deal point is that something that that most in negotiating these insist on but or is it even if it is it is not generally available because of the volatility in the market as you say Devin, before you answer that, just mm-hmm. er, so Dan, so there's two. You're talking, and just again for my clarity, we've got one vendor who's going to build the project, and the one with whom you have the, the contractual, contractual relationship. Right. But the expectation is that there will be a separate entity or company that's likely handling the maintenance of of the solar panels, etc. Well, that well that gets to my question. Right. I think it assumes yeah. that that there may or may not be, and I think that that's largely the case. I, I don't see any reason why you would have to have the same company mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. the the company that you are in contract with could contract out for those services. Yeah, if you're doing a PPA, that's who's going to maintain your property or you maintain your panels for the, or at least nominally, right? They may subcontract out that work, but that vendor is going to maintain their own property or ensure that it's maintained. Uh, my example would be, though, as I was saying earlier, where that vendor is going through some kind of internal instability, um, they may not be doing as good a job at that as they used to, but it's their financial incentive to to maintain the panel, and they will f- usually tell you that that you know we're all on the same team because we want to see this system generate power and and at the rate we project it, and we and you want you want it to do so too because it's cheaper. If the and we'll talk about I think right around the bend here where we're doing a cash purchase or the the district ends up owning the panels and yeah one of the models there is that the vendor who builds for you and you pay to build something that you own then it's also the party that maintains for you and as i said a few minutes ago in that scenario they usually they will sometimes offer you a guarantee so long as they're doing the maintenance 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, sometimes folks decide, you know, I just want, I'm going to go out and hire somebody else to do M&L or even I've got staff that I can train to do it. Big right. districts can do that as well. Mm-hmm. Devin, I want to ask Dan about other ways to do this if mm-hmm. you're not going to do a PPA. But before I ask him that, are we aware of, so you talked about the possibility in this volatile market of, um, you know, company A that's in the PPA, they go under, they're replaced by with a new name, they're now mm-hmm. company B, et cetera. Uh, have we seen scenarios yet where company A goes bankrupt? And I know that as a public entity, you know, we get a certain place on the list as they're sorting out uh, things in bankruptcy. But if we see the scenario where that PPA vendor goes bankrupt and as part of that bankruptcy proceeding, the PPA agreement itself is directly impacted and I assume worst case scenario undone in a way where the new company Mm -hmm. can come back and then demand a different or higher rate than that 20 year Mm -hmm. flat rate that we negotiated originally. Yeah. Yeah. We've seen things along those lines. Um, I've had PPAs where the vendor goes into bankruptcy before it's even built where you you're end up sitting there waiting. And oftentimes you're trying to take advantage of favorable conditions with the utility, such as right. the rate that the utility is going to pay for energy if you build the system within a particular time frame. We call that net energy metering. Um, so I've seen that scenario and I've seen the scenario. And in that scenario, you know, usually some other party comes along and buys the asset that's the PPA. It's just not as soon as you wanted it to be built. And you maybe forfeit the economic benefit you thought you were going to get. The other scenario would be which you mentioned where, you know, they go through bankruptcy after it's been built and um, there's somebody, the new owner wants to see changes. Usually that new, it's not really the new owner, it's the new investor who reviews the PPA and says, this doesn't contain protections for us that we want to see. I mean, things like notice to the vendor if conditions change or, you know, guarantees you're going to continue paying during, you know, during the period of time that, that the the projects, you know, been suspended, anything like that. Um, so we, we definitely get those requests to enter into new conditions. You know, you hold some negotiating power at those points, but you, you do and you don't because you have this sitting on your site. And so generally speaking, we try to find terms with those investors that we can live with. Thanks. Thanks. That, I mean, that it seems to me that that's one of the areas where I'm certain that you two get questions, but have to get questions is what happens if these scenarios unfold like that. But so, Dan, let's say I don't want to do a P- I'm a school district or another public entity. I don't want to do a PPA. I want to own the solar for for myself as an entity. How do we do that? Or can you? Yeah, of course. And uh, and really, this is the prohibitive majority of situations that I see being in my public finance bubble here. Um, uh, the the question is is not so much uh, whether I can use a particular source of, of funds uh, to to pay for, um, but it is really more about how and and should I? Because as we're going to talk about in a bit, some of some of the how um, is necessarily debt incursion, right? But but let's just assume that you've got some some proceeds um, or sources on hand. What could that be? That could be just about anything. It could be. It could be general fund. It could be developer fees. Generally speaking, it could be it could be many many sources. Um, and then, the approach that that most take when when the sources are just not there or available, um, we get into a new money financing. Uh, the most common approach there is is a, is a private placement lease financing. 
Uh, but getting back to the cash option, option uh, I suppose always better to pay with cash if you could, if you can afford it, if you can part with it. Um, that really is, though, uh, that that statement though does quite a lot of disservice to actual conditions on the ground. Oftentimes, you just can't part with it, um, and so you you'll be looking at certain uh, financing options. Um, uh, general obligation bond funds as well. Maybe you're already sitting on a finance financing proceeds that you can use for this, but be sure as as most projects lists under Proposition 39 already do, uh, that it's broad enough to embrace um, new uh, energy improvements like like what we're talking about. And I don't think it has to be all, as as Bond Council, one that drafts Prop 39 project lists, I don't think you need to say, we're going to have solar panels at Cook Elementary, um, and it's going to look like this, and it's gonna be over a parking structure. In, in no scenario is, is your articulation in a project list required to be that, that Detail. specific, right? Generally speaking, most project lists, if they're crafted well enough, they're gonna be broad enough to embrace, embrace these sorts of projects. Devin, I want to ask you about what you've seen on the ground lately as it relates to this, but just very briefly, and, and obviously a lot of our listeners, especially those who are either superintendents or CBOs, uh, are, are extremely familiar with Prop 39 and how that works. I'll, you know, I'll be honest, I don't have to deal with it that much. Can, can one or both of you just give a real quick kind of, you know, 30-second a summary of kind of how Prop 39 works, it, it, you know, its requirements, how it, it interacts in general with, you know, obviously districts around the state are constantly going out for bonds. But can, just just a real quick overview as to how, you know, that Prop 39 piece, since, since you both mentioned it two or three well, times. Yeah, you know, I want to well, clarify the, the, before, the, Dan, I'm sorry, before um, you got, get into sure. what's really your expertise, there's actually three ways that we use the term Prop 39 in the school district context. Right. Yeah. right? So I, I'm thinking the charter school way, right? Right. You know? Okay, right. right. So there's this charter school facilities request, and that, that, that actually was part of the original proposition that um, Dan's going to talk about, which is how we get voter approval for long-term debt. So that's number two is, you know, 55% on a previous long-term debt, and that's really Dan's area of expertise. But number three, and I've mentioned it a couple times, is in the past – Oh gosh, I'll I have to go back and think of the the year, but in the oh, 2012, 2012 voters passed a new Proposition 39, helpfully numbered, <laughs> that made funding available for energy efficiency projects for school districts. So we have to distinguish when we're talking about Prop 39 in a bond context versus Prop 39 in a funding for energy efficiency projects. Why? I'll talk about that so, subject later on. Yeah, you could have multiple Prop 39s working <laughs> Two on Two different on types a, of Prop 39s on one of these projects. On one of these projects. They're actually, right, and we're actually talking about two different propositions in two different uh, two different years. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. right. So, so Dan, the yeah. traditional, uh, original, the first Prop 39. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in 2000, um, the, 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 the voters of the state of California approved uh, the Proposition 39 initiative, um, which uh, sought to redress uh, a problem in access for school districts to capital funds to build uh, schools. Um, at that time, our, our uh, vote threshold for general obligation bonds was two-thirds, and because that is such a high threshold uh, to meet, 
the state of, 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 of facilities across the state um, was was poorer than it is today and there was a need an immediate need to redress that so the voters passed prop 39 which lowered that threshold to to 55 percent down from two-thirds a great great benefit after that i think uh 84 of all local school district bond measures that that were put in front of the voters under that authority uh were passed by that lower vote threshold um the higher vote threshold is is still considerably lower in terms of success than that but of course there's some trade-offs right and i and i know we don't want to get into this too deeply but since you ask uh one of those trade-offs was the uh, the charter school facilities use elements of Proposition 39 that we talked about a little bit. Another one um, were, uh, were some accountability measures. The one accountability measure that, that, that most folks focus on and that we're focusing on now is the requirement that the ballot itself must specify the projects that the proceeds from the bonds are going to be used on, right? And it, it works as a, as a universe, meaning that unless, a pro, unless a, an expenditure can be placed somewhere on that project list, it is outside of the project list and not a proper expenditure of, of, the, of the bond funds or the bond proceeds. Got it. So, and you had said, well, one question and then, and mm-hmm. then another question. There is still uh, there's still the ability to pass a two thirds bond, right? Yeah, and, there is. Mm-hmm. And can you just briefly touch on the the lesser degree of oversight or the greater degree of flexibility which you have as, as a district if you are able to pass that that higher threshold bond as opposed to your your bare fifty five percent? Sure. As a technical matter, I'd tell you that there is more flexibility. As a practical matter, I'd say there it's is none. There. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is that even though it is only under the Prop thirty nine context or the fifty five percent bond context that you have the accountability measures, and they are annual audit, annual financial and performance audits. The establishment of a bond oversight committee and a project list; uh, those things are oftentimes features of even the so-called traditional authority measures. Because remember that you have to entice your folks to vote to for this, it. and so even when it's not required, uh, a bond oversight committee is still installed in a traditional authority bond because the voters desire it. All right. But I want to go back to something you mentioned right before I started asking about this generally, because I think what you just described d- does give kind of an over- overview, lay of the land yeah. here. You had mentioned that you thought a given project, um, you know, in terms of the degree of specificity mm-hmm. that would be necessary um, to to move forward with it under a bond. I think you made a statement like, well, you wouldn't go down to that level of granular detail in essence yeah. as far as your... So get, for projects in this area, what would you say is kind of the type of descriptor of the intended use of bond funds that would you you easily pop projects in this area underneath when moving forward? Oh, anything on... Any variation on the theme of energy efficiency Got improvements, it. I think, is is more than enough That's to your let... Uh, to to inform a contemporary understanding of, of that this is what we're talking about. Got it. When you see those lang- that kind of language in a project list, 
it's precisely this kind of thing that we're talking about. We're talking about solar panels. We're talking about um, upgraded uh, thermostats and control systems. We're talking about HVAC systems. So um, while you know, the, the, while a project list has to be specific, it doesn't have to uh, detail um, the precise project um, in the precise location. That that is to and, and think about it from this perspective. A, a project list is a document uh, that is set in stone by the, le- by the, by the voters um, at time zero. Right. But we have to live with that. And the legislature has to give us enough flexibility to, to allow for a project list description that can that is amenable to bending and flexing over a period of years while you are rolling out, making sales of those bonds, right? And then rolling out the expenditures that derive from those sales. So we're, we're really talking about a, oftentimes, a lot of times, a six-year process. So a lot can happen in, in six years. Think about 2005 and how different that 2005 looked as compared to 2010. Right. So a person that, or a project list that, that was maybe too specific and too, too uh, viewing the world in a 2005 sense is going to be all that much ineffective or all that much more ineffective when you get to 2010 after the residential real estate crisis. Dan, Devin, uh, thank you very much. Uh, this is gonna conclude part one of our discussion. Uh, When we pick back up with part two, I want to continue to talk to you, but this time with maybe a greater focus on other ways to finance energy projects. Thanks. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.